Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. If you could please stand, we'll begin in prayer. In heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. Stephen Smith. All right. Um, how are we doing tonight? Good. Happy Easter. We can still say that, right? Yes. Happy Easter. Greet someone next to you and wish them happy Easter. I'm trying to remember the last time I was here. But the last time I was uh, with uh, the Institute, at the very kind invitation of Deacon Carnazzo, was uh, for a class we did in the Old Testament. How many were at that class back in the fall? Yeah, I recognize a lot of you. And so we're moving from the old to the new, which is always fun. All right, so we have a great topic. Um, tonight's topic, and it will con continue and conclude next week, is on the epistles of St. John. Now, be honest now, it's the Easter season. How many people have read through all three Johannine letters? How many have done so in the last six months? Okay, so you're in the right place. Uh, these aren't things that we t generally um, deal with a lot. They don't show up a lot in the lectionary readings. Um, they're pretty short. I like to say 2nd and 3rd John are sort of divine emails because they're really not that long. Uh, apparently they had... Uh, you know, Facebook back then, because it seems like John just Twittered this thing out. Um, but all kidding aside, there is a tremendous amount of theology and substance that we're going to uh, get into here beginning tonight. So if you would um, take out your outline, that your joy may be full, a study of the epistles of St. John. As you know, John the Apostle uh, is the apostle, the figure that is attributed to five books of the New Testament. Court, let's name them, right? We've got the Gospel according to St. John, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and Revelation. He's just behind St. Paul. St. Paul's definitely out in front of him with, what is it, 13? But um, he's definitely contributed a major uh, amount of divine truth in the New Testament. What we're going to do tonight is look at three of those five books. There's a nice quote here, which is kind of a theme for our series it's from 3 John, verse 4. No greater joy can I have than this, to hear that my children follow the truth. There's the heart of an apostle. There's the heart of an evangelist. And by the way, that's the heart of every priest as well, right? And it should be the prayer of every grandparent and every parent as well for their own children. I'm talking here about biological children. No greater joy can I have than this, than to hear that my children follow and love the truth. Okay, and that's what we're, where we're going to start. Now, here's the objective. In this study, page one, uh, we'll examine 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. These are three rich, yet often overlooked New Testament books. I call them hidden gems, because they're right in plain sight, but they're often not really looked at a lot by Catholics. 
So I was very pleased when Melanie um, you know, emailed me and asked me if I'd be interested in, I think it was actually Deacon uh, Sabatino, but in any case, that if I'd be interested in coming. I said, are you kidding me? I love these books. Um, but they're hidden gems, and we're gonna, um, they give us a lot of insights into the life of the early church. They impart apostolic wisdom, very practical teachings, very practical books on topics like prayer, growing in holiness, the sacraments, uh, and in many ways, above all, the nature of love. As you know, that very famous statement from the Bible comes from 1 John, God is love. You're going to have to wait till next week when I get into that, but I'm going to, believe me, we'll do diligence on that one for sure. Above all, the Johannine epistles call us to place Jesus Christ at the center of our lives and to live in the joy of the risen Lord. This is our objective. Now, a little bit of strategy, how we're going to do this. So I thought about, well, should we do 1 John tonight and then 2 and 3 John? I've actually tweaked a little bit, and here's what we're going to do. Tonight, we'll introduce the Johannine epistles and then take a close-up look at a key passage in 1 John, namely his prologue, which is just four verses. And most of our time tonight, believe it or not, um, I want to spend a lot of our time devoted to just those four verses because I'm very firmly committed that if you understand what's going on in those four verses, you will have a very good beginning grasp at all three of these epistles. Okay? And then rather than going into the rest of 1 John, we're going to do something that may appear at first to be a little unusual. We're going to set 1 John aside, and we're going to deal with 2 and 3 John because they're quite brief, and we can sort of get a, a handle on them rather quickly, right? And then what we'll do next week is we'll turn to the remainder of 1 John and we'll do sort of a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study of the rest of that, okay? And as we do, next week, we're going to pay very close attention to a crisis that was going on in some of John's churches. Now tonight, when we turn to 2 and 3 John, you'll get just a little taste of what's going on as far as this crisis, but next week it will be a major spotlight for us to talk about because in 1 John I will show you a lot of what uh, is very likely going on uh, in John's churches and how he deals with these things. Um, we'll also, as I said, come to a better understanding um, what John means by this famous statement, God is love, in 1 John 4, and what he desires for us today. So that's where we're going, okay? Now, um, by way of introduction, I want to say a few things about the author of this book, because these questions come, came up. Did St. John write this? Okay. So there are a couple of uh, things that you need to know here. Let's look at the bottom of page one. First, what does Scripture say? That's always a good place to begin, right, to get some answers. What does Scripture say? Well, 1 John does not name the author. It doesn't, right? It begins with the prologue, and then he goes into it. So what we have is the inscription or the heading, right? But we don't actually have a named author. Same thing with the Gospel of John, so that really shouldn't surprise us. In fact, all four Gospels do not actually name the authors. But I would make a very strong argument, since I brought this up, that from the very beginning of the apostolic era, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were attributed to the individuals, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who were their authors. Let's just make no mistake about it. There's a lot of scholars today who would say, we don't really know who wrote the Gospels, and only in maybe the second century or thereafter were they attributed to the apostles. Have you heard that? It's floating around out there, and um, it's just a lie. It's just, honestly, I don't know how to be crass here, but it's just not true. We don't have a single copy of any of the Gospels that do not have the
the inscriptions over them. Now, it gets interesting because some people will say, ah, well, yes, that's true, but when are, the, when are those copies from? Second century, third century, fourth century? So the skeptics will say that the church or someone added those names after the fact. But I want to press back on them and say, well, where's your proof? If you can show me one copy where, we don't, where it doesn't say the gospel according to St. John, I might begin to say, well, tell me your argument here. But we don't have a single copy. So it's an argument from silence to say, well, in the first century, they were anonymous gospels, and they were kind of individually floated around, and we don't rather know if Luke wrote it or not. Well, that, that's just a hypothetical argument. We don't have any uh, proof in that direction. What we do have is over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, and every single gospel that we have is, um, has the inscriptions over them. Right? So you can look at, for example, Codex uh, Sinaiticus, which is our oldest full New Testament in Greek uh, from the third century, and it will say the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. In addition to that, the weight of evidence from all the church fathers, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, not even overwhelmingly, it's unanimous, assert that Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John. But we live in an era of great skepticism when people have called into question the apostolic authorship of these uh, gospels. Now, we're not here to tonight to really talk about the Gospels or the authorship, but I, just, I always want to say that when I'm with folks because you, you never know who's out here and who's listening and, and other folks that you've talked to, and I want to just assert again that Dei Verbum and the teaching of the church is that the Gospels are eyewitness testimony, right? That we, we, we trust the Gospels because they come from a divine source, but also because those human sources were with Jesus. Now, what about these epistles? Well, as I said, 1 John is unnamed, but 2nd and 3rd John, it does uh, name an elder whose name is John. The word in Greek is presbuteros, which can also be translated priest as well as elder. So let me give you a couple of uh, views, and I'll, I'll kind of try to go through this rather quickly so we can get into the, the meat of tonight, which is the prologue. But the traditional view is that John, son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, is the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as um, the Gospel of John and Revelation. The modern view is predominantly a little bit different. The modern view, this is page 2, is that there was another John, a second figure in addition to the Apostle, known as the Presbyter, or Elder, who was a disciple of St. John. And some believe that this second John was the person responsible for the content of all three epistles. And parenthetically, some will say that that second John figure was the compiler or editor of John's gospel, or specifically maybe wrote John 21, which is sort of like the final epilogue of the book. Now here's a little bit of analysis. I gave you the, the, the patristic traditional view, gave you the modern view. Here's some analysis. On one hand, apostolic authorship of the Johannine epistles was accepted by many patristic figures from the early 2nd century. And that's very important testimony because, you know, they're closer to the situation than we are. And so if, something, if someone like St. Irenaeus or another early figure attests that it was written by John, we ought to take that seriously. It doesn't mean it's open and shut, but it ought to mean that's very important. Now, St. Justin Martyr in his dialogue and St. Irenaeus in his book Against Heresies cite quotations from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They don't come right out and say he wrote it, but the fact that they're citing it as authoritative should get our attention, right? Which is to say that if they're citing it, 
in, in writing their, um, their various writings, it supports its apostolic credentials. Now, on the other hand, to be fair here, modern scholarship is not without cause in raising good questions um, given the above about this so-called second John figure. In fact, this theory of a second John finds support from, among others, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, and you're not going to find a stronger biblical scholar living on the planet than him. You can read his Jesus of Nazareth, and in volume one, the red and gold book, right, the first one, which goes from the baptism to the transfiguration, he's got a whole chapter on John, John's symbols, and his own approach, again, it's just his personal opinion, but his approach is that um, John, the second John, John the Elder, wrote the epistles, and also, after the death of John, put together the apostolic, uh, the gospel of John from the apostolic kerygma, from his, John's teaching. So he believes he did it faithfully, he did it loyally to John, and that he knew John personally as one of John's own apostles. So how do you think the Pope's doing in terms of his integrity with Catholic teaching? I'd say he's doing just fine, because when you read De Verbum, you read the Catechism, um, we could say that certainly all the gospels firmly go back to the apostolic figures, although what he's saying is, Benedict believes that John promulgated the gospel orally and that his faithful disciple, whose name was also John, after the uh, apostle died, put it together after his death and also wrote these epistles. So there's, now there's a view um, that would explain, if this other John was in play, how it could have all worked. Um, yet studies suggest, this is point number three under Roman numeral four, studies suggest that there are numerous parallels, literary parallels, speech patterns, etc., between the Gospel of John on one hand and the epistles on the other that suggest that the plausibility of one author uh, should by no means be ruled out. Okay, so I'm trying to do this fair here and say you got a lot of traditional evidence that John wrote everything. You've got some conservative, traditional, strong figures, even like Benedict, saying, now wait a minute, there is evidence to say that John's own apostle, whose name is also John, wrote some of this stuff, right? And that because the two names, they're the same name, Ioannin in Greek, John, they figures kind of merge. That's sort of his view. Now, our conclusion in my own view, based upon all the evidence, as well as the witness of sacred tradition, we, that is me and my seven-year-old daughter, it's the, it's the kind of like, you know, we, <laughs> we confidently accept apostolic authorship of all the Johannine writings for the New Testament. So... Um, you know, I, I, there's no figure I respect more than Pope Benedict as a biblical theologian. There's just not, not living, right? Um, although I, my view is a little bit different than his, and I do believe that there's a, a plausible case that John, the apostle, was the author of all five of these books. And when I teach at the seminary or here, I'm going to follow that basic approach. But you wouldn't be sort of a heretic if you said, well, you know, it's possible there was a, another disciple named John, and we're not in any harm there whatsoever with the catechism, with Benedict, with Francis, with anyone else. It's perfectly safe and fine, okay? So um, if you hear people talking about it, they're not, you know, of two heads or heretics. It's quite possible. My own view, though, just errors on the side of caution and the tradition, and I believe it's not at all implausible to say St. John wrote all of these, okay? Okay, uh, the date of the letter, it really doesn't matter in terms of its theology, but likely in, uh, at the end of the first century, 90 to 100 AD. It's possible earlier, but it seems like it was written after the Gospels of John, and most people would assert that John was likely written at the end of the Apostle's life. Although some will say today that John, the Gospel of John may have been written in the 60s, if you heard that, before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. 
And um, that's possible. The majority view is that John was written maybe in the late 80s or 90s. And if the letters are sort of dependent upon that gospel as its heritage and foundation, then that would mean maybe in 85 to 100. And we are, tradition says John um, lived a long life. He was not martyred, died of natural causes uh, during the reign of Domitian, which was at the end of... Uh, the 90s, okay? And that's likely when these three were written. It's also very likely that 1 John was the first letter written and 2nd and 3rd John, which is why they're compiled in the canon in that order, okay? Not because of the, the length necessarily. The occasion of the letters. Uh, why did he write them? Why did St. John write them? Well, the shortest answer is encouragement. To encourage the faithful believers of his church, or plural churches, local churches, right, uh, with whom the author had a relationship as teacher, but there's a key word I left out, an authoritative relationship. He is their apostle and founder, and he makes that plain in a number of instances. For example, he uses the term antichrist in the letters, and by antichrist, he does not mean the beast with uh, seven heads and ten horns. He means a kind of heretical figure who boasts of having authority or is persuasive and yet is not an apostle. And we'll get more into this, okay? So um, just a little clarification. That term antichrist that we think is so associated with the book of Revelation, guess what? It ain't in there. The term antichrist is not in the book of Revelation. It's not in the Greek, it's not in the English, it's not in the Latin, it's not there. So I'll be able to talk about the antichrist figure in Revelation. It's actually in these letters, believe it or not. Uh, So John is trying to shore up the faithful in light of an antichrist or an anti-Jesus sort of figure Um, and reassert, or to continue to assert his apostolic authority and to guide them deeper into the truth. And as I said, we'll see a little bit this week, but also more next week, how there was uh, trouble amok, right? And there was very likely a a possible schism that was either happening or about to happen that John wants to head off. And by the end of the series, you'll understand what, what that was all about. Um, Key themes, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, Some of the major themes include faithfulness to Jesus and Jesus' commandments, confession of sin and repentance, the the love commandment, uh, which which really is rooted in John's gospel. uh, In in John's gospel, Jesus is attributed to saying, you know, greater love is no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends, and also saying... um, Love one another as I have loved you. That's John 13, 34. So the so-called love commandment is another one of those parallels that persuades me that uh, the theology of the uh, epistles is very closely associated with John's overall program in the gospel. So these, in some ways, these epistles are almost like mini-gospel. They're not mini-gospels. The gospel is a whole different kind of literature, right? The life of Jesus is miracles. It's not that. But what I mean is that in some sense, the theology, if you reduce it down in John's gospel, what you end up with might look something like the epistles in miniature. Um, okay, a recurrent theme, this is point D, is knowing and living the truth. Knowing and living in the truth and persevering or abiding in the same truth, especially in light of schismatic beliefs. By schismatic, I mean those who are breaking away from the apostolic teachings under the influence, as I said, of a, an antichrist figure. All right, that's my introduction. Any questions, any comments you want to ask? Maybe we can take at the end, so write them down so we can move through the material. And I'll be very happy after we take a little intermission later um, to come back and if we have time, take a few questions. Um, 
All right, now let me read for us the prologue of St. John because I said that's our major concentration tonight. On the bottom of page two, here it is. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our own eye, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing that this joy, that our joy may be complete. Now, let's try to take this apart and see what's going on in here. And what I'm going to do is go just verse by verse and you'll see in sort of... Uh, uppercase, some key phrases, and I'll try to explain them for you, okay? The first one is from the beginning in verse 1. So let's look at verse 1 in a little bit of detail. What is meant by this? Well, the Greek phrase is uppercase. Um, Luke uses the same phrase in his prologue. Uh, he talks about those, um, if you look at his prologue, who were with Jesus in the, from the beginning, right? Going back, so it's possible he's talking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, is that what he's talking about when he says that which was from the beginning? Well, that's possible, but more likely, it's a reference to Jesus' eternal sonship. If you go back and look at, first, at, excuse me, at John 1, verse 1, that's where John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and so on and so forth, right? It's very likely that that's the beginning that he's talking about, Jesus' eternal beginning, which is not a beginning, strictly speaking, because he's from eternity to eternity, right? But it's about this life of Jesus with the Father in heaven from all of eternity. I think that's what he's talking about, and as we move into to more detail tonight, I'm going to try to prove that to you. Now, um, the we, right? That which we have heard, we have seen. Who's the we? Is it the church? Is it all of us? Who is it? Well, there are numerous first-person references like we, our, us, throughout these letters that underscore the eyewitness testimony of the letters. So in most cases, the we that we're going to see is what I call the apostolic we. It's John and the company of the apostles with him. Certainly Peter, right? Um, but it's John also, and it's the apostolic uh, college, you might say. That's the we that we're talking about. But it's also him in particular, Okay, now, next page, page three, we have all these verbs here, right? That which we have heard, seen, touched. What's he saying to us here? Well, let me put it in the form of a question. Why do we place our confidence in the four Gospels and in these epistles? Well, here's one key reason. We trust the sources. Above all, the source, with a capital S, is the Holy Spirit. From a Catholic perspective, we firmly assert that all of Scripture was breathed forth by God. God breathed forth the Scriptures. God speaks to us in Scripture. I'm so firmly committed to that that my, my, it's my website, The God Who Speaks. So anyone who goes to my website can't even meet me, see what the heck is going on, without first encountering that basic truth. Our God is the God who speaks. Amen? Amen. And we also trust, in addition to the ultimate source, which is the Holy Spirit, we affirm the human sources and their eyewitness testimony. So when John says, that which we have heard, we have seen, we have touched, that's very important. He's reasserting and reminding us, we need to take him seriously in whatever he says because he's been with Jesus, right? Okay, um, these verbs, heard, seen, looked upon, and so on, 
indicates something very hands-on. The nature of, of eyewitness testimony of the apostles is that they really were with Jesus. They saw him, they heard him, they were in his company for about three years. They were there from his baptism through his resurrection and ascension. And we're going to talk more about this mystery of, of what they saw. But let's move forward. Um, he also says in verse 1, the word of life. And people ask, well, what does that mean? I think this is just another way of saying the kerygma, the good news, the euangelion, the gospel, right? So don't be confused. The word of life is simply another expression for the good old gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ was crucified and risen. That's the gospel. Um, all right, verse 2. Um, the first uh, phrase here is this, uh, he says, the life was made manifest and we saw it. Remember, in John's gospel, he had told us that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, over on the right, I've given you just a little box. This is the kind of thing I do with my seminaries all the time, a word study. And we're not going to go into a, a big deal about this here, but I just want to show you that there's a word that shows up in the Greek in this verse, and the verb is phanerao. Can you say that with me, please? Phanerao. That's just the Greek letters for it there. And what I've, sh what I've tried to show you is, uh, and it'd be better if it was in color, of course, or on a screen, but you still get the idea, that there's sort of a range of meaning. And when you're trying to determine what is the best word, there's a whole series of things that are done. But essentially, the word made manifest, it works very well. Here are some other possible options. Revealed, seen, shown, or disclosed. Revealed or made manifest are likely the best that fit here. But if we had more time, I would show you how these other um, um, connotations could make sense because this word appears in other scriptures. And that's kind of how we do it. We lay them all out. We look at the possibilities and we just try to determine the best word. That's what interpreters do, to, do here. Made manifest sometimes confuses people. So if that confuses you, you could say was revealed and that works. Okay. What John is saying is when he says um, the life that was made manifest and we saw it and testified, he's saying the life, which is Jesus' eternal life, was, made, was revealed to us. Somehow this mystery of the logos in heaven was made manifest or revealed, unveiled, you might say, shown, disclosed to the apostles and to the other. And he says we saw it. The eternal life was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's basically talking about what I call that V pattern of Jesus' life, right? He was with the Father in heaven. He took on flesh in Mary's womb. He lived here for 30 years. He was taught. He started his public ministry. He was arrested, tried, crucified, died, buried, resurrected, ascended back to the Father. And John has just summarized in one verse that whole mystery. The life that was in heaven was made manifest to us in the flesh. We saw it and testify to that life in the flesh. So it's an incarnational mystery that John's talking about here. Now look at what the Catechism says on this point. The transmission of the Christian faith consists primarily in proclaiming Jesus Christ in order to lead others to faith in him. From the beginning... His first disciples, or apostles, burned with the desire to proclaim Christ. As John and Paul said in the book of Acts, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Very similar to John, right? That's just the apostolic mandate. 
we need to be reminded in our day of what they did so intuitively. They didn't even, it was just an impulse. They just knew that they had to do this. Um, my pastor, who's can be pretty challenging in a, in a good way, last Sunday, you know, we're reading the um, Gospel of Luke from the Emmaus account, and one of the things, I wrote, actually wrote it down in my program, he said, um, at some point we have to open our mouth, and the truth has got to come out. And I was sitting there, and it really leveled me. I thought, how, often, how am I doing these days at it, right? And he, he actually ended by saying, uh, it sounds a lot more kind of hostile than as he's just the sweetest guy, but he, he actually said this. He said, if we never do that, if we refuse to do that, and we're not just talking about being afraid, and, but if we willingly, repetitively refuse to do that, he says, it's an act of ultimate selfishness. Because he talked about how those uh, disciples in the Emmaus Road went and told the apostles in the upper room, and it was that night that Jesus appeared to the 12 in the upper room. And in the, the sharing of those stories, they each deepen their, other, their other's faith. And I think what my pastor is saying is, which gets us back on, on, on track here, is that um, we cannot neglect that responsibility, but also that joy that we have. And that's what John is talking about here and reminding his, his uh, church to do the same, reminding us to do the same. We need to be praying about that. Lord, help me to have courage. Lord, help me to share my faith in simple ways. Okay, verse 4 that our joy may be complete. John's ultimate purpose is kara, in Greek, joy. Right? He's often called the disciple or apostle of love, but I think it's fair to call him the disciple or apostle of joy because it's so much a part of his vocabulary. It's unclear, by the way, whether the text should read our joy or your joy. You may even have a translation that has a little footnote that where it says our joy and then it says in the footnote or, or your joy. So there's a little debate about this, but it's nothing to really get hung up about. Um, here's the way I put it. In some respects, the ambiguity of the pronoun is fitting because uh, the joy of the believer, as the joy of the believers increases, so does the apostolic joy. So it's a win-win, right? When it's like uh, John says in, uh, on the first page, no greater joy than I have than this, than my disciple, my children follow the truth. So whether it's your joy, meaning you, know, you are filled up in Christ, that just makes John happy. And I think that that's likely the case. Here's some anecdotal evidence from John 15 that makes the your joy likelier. I don't think he's thinking about him. He's thinking, he's thinking about the church because he says, um, these, Jesus, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, there's the words from the master himself. So I think it's very likely that John is following the master and saying, you know, I'm joyful when your joy is growing, right? Okay. Um, just a little did you know. Uh, did you know that when the angel greets the Blessed Virgin Mary in Luke's gospel, right, in the Annunciation, the term hail, um, followed by full of grace, actually comes from the same root as we're talking about right here, kara, which means joy rejoice full of grace that would actually be quite appropriate i'm not saying you should change it or mark it out but um that would be quite quite accurate um lesser translations will have something like greetings which is just a horrible translation it just is i'm sorry and it's often in the protestant if you're here and you're protestant i love you i was a protestant for a period of my life but you know you got a bad translation in the niv there just put in hail okay you don't have to be catholic to do it it's just better rejoice would also work and here's why since I brought it up, um, kyre is a Greek term which means rejoice, and it's found on three occasions in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament. Remember, written in Hebrew, translated to Greek, right, the Septuagint? And every time that kyre, the archangel's message to, to Mary, or kyre, rejoice, hail, every time that's used in the Old Testament, 
It's used in a messianic context. Here's one example. Uh, Zechariah 9.9, it's in the footnotes at the bottom. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. The word kyrie. It's the word hail. Hail, rejoice, same word, right? So greetings just doesn't work, right? Um, But more importantly, why does Luke record that word of Mary, well, uh, uh, of the angel? Well, because I think that's the way it happened, for sure, but also because Luke is pointing out something about the connection between Mary and the Old Testament, right? Mary is the faithful daughter of Zion in person. Mary is the the embodiment of faithful Israel. And also, because every time that word kairi is used, it refers to the coming Messiah, isn't that interesting that that's the first word out of the angel's mouth when he speaks to the mother of the Messiah? Kairi, messianic joy, right? The Lord is with you. Hail, rejoice, full of grace. Okay, just a little bit of Luke thrown in as a bonus tonight. All right, um, now, um, before we get to 2nd and 3rd John, I want to walk you through a little bit of a mystery on verse uh, uh, verse 2. And my wife, who's always my proofreader, said, Steve, do you realize that you have 26 points on one verse? And I said, yes, yes, I do. I do. So let's try to, this is, this is going to be fun, though. Okay. So um, a key portion of the prologue that we've looked at in 1 John is verse 2. The life was made manifest. We saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Okay. Um, Now, the impact of what was explained above in this prologue, which we just finished doing, is deepened further when we compare John's prologue, John's gospel, with this mini-prologue, as I call it, in 1 John. So what I want to do is a little bit of comparison and show you something that I think you're going to really find exciting and interesting. So let's talk a little bit about um, John's prologue, the gospel. Um, John's prologue is like any of the other Gospels because they don't have anything like that, right? Luke begins with the infancy narrative. Matthew begins with the genealogy. Uh, Mark begins with Jesus' baptism as an adult. How does John begin? Well, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God up in the heavenly realms. Okay, point number four. So I'm going to move quickly here. Um, In the beginning, there it is. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so this is the truth here, right? That Jesus' eternal divine life was with God, God the Father, and that's the first great mystery that John unveils in his gospel. A second great mystery in his prologue comes in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Now, everybody knows that verse. Every Catholic knows that verse or ought to know that verse. But guess what? That's not the whole verse. There's an A, there's a B, and there's a C. That's part A of the verse. So let me read B and C. It's actually my own favorite part. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Here comes B and C. We have beheld His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, we've just read and studied a little bit about the prologue of uh, John's epistle, right? When you read that, John 14, B and C, John 1, 14, B and C. Do you see a little bit of resonance with that, what we just read? I do. It's like he's saying the same thing. Clearly, both prologues are giving us some very important information about why we must heed John's apostolic message. And here it is. The divine life, this mysterious life hidden 
with God the Father from all of eternity until the incarnation has been revealed, has been phanerao, made manifest to John. And while his incarnation was revealed to the world in some greater sense, to the Magi and right into to the world, in some sense it was made manifest, phanerao, in a particular way with Peter, James, John, and all the rest of the twelve who were with him for three years. It was the apostles who beheld him. They're the we of John 1.14. They're the we of uh, John's uh, uh, epistle, the prologue in, that we just looked at. Okay, so point number 11. I told you to go fast. Similar to 1 John, the prologue of John explains the relationship between the Father and the Son, the Son and the apostles, and the apostles and the church. They both do this. They both talk about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, between the Son and the apostles, and then between the apostles and the church. And it's kind of a quid pro quo relationship where there's a kind of like a triangle, and here's how it works, right? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Well, how is that related to 114? Well, let's read it again slowly. Just take a breath here. John 114, we have beheld his glory glories of the only Son of the Father. I've suggested again, the we there is the apostles, the apostolic we. Well, what about in 116? And from his fullness, we all received grace upon grace. And I would suggest that the second we, we all, is now John the apostle with the rest of the 12 and all the believers. Yes? The we all is everyone. The first we is just the apostles. And those apostles are the key pivot between the life of God in heaven, the Blessed Trinity, particularly the Father and the Logos, the Son, and the church. They're the mediators. They're the intermediaries between this mystery. The we all of 16 is different from the we of 14. Compare that with 1 John verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. That's the we all. That which we have seen, the apostles, we proclaim also to you. So I guess what I'm saying here is when you actually study both prologues, what you begin to see is John has a whole picture here that he's trying to convey. He's talking about the life of Jesus in heaven with the Father and how that was made manifest to him and the other apostles. But then the, the really important point is the big shift is how John the apostle wants his church to know that that mystery, which he is actually conveyed and seen with his own eyes, he is now communicating in his epistles and in his gospel, and that's why we have to take it seriously. Now, um, finally, this is uh, point 15, in John 1.17, the evangelist seems to take a theological detour away from this eternal Logos Christology. He's been talking about, you know, the Logos and Jesus. Now, he goes on and says... Um, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. At this point, people, are minds are spinning and blown. You just want to get under the rest of the gospel, and we just kind of tuck that aside and say, oh, okay, I don't know. I'm Moses, he's talking about Moses now. It's not a detour. It actually is very, very relevant to his major point. The conclusion of the prologue is directly related to everything that he's been saying about how John has been beholding that which was from eternity. Look at the final verse. It's in point 16. No one has ever seen God, God the Father, but the only Son who's in the bosom, or Augustine's translation was lap, the bosom of the Father, he, he the Son, has made him that is God known. 
So here, the mention of Moses takes on deeper meaning. It's not a detour at all. Here's the point. In the Old Testament, there was no figure that surpassed Moses, who God knew face to face. Listen to what Deuteronomy says. Top of page, uh, what is it now? Uh, one, two, three. I forgot the page numbers. Is it four? Um, and there was, had not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. We'll add this into the mix. Earlier in his life, Moses prayed that God would show Moses his own glory. Exodus 33, check it out. Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. However, God insisted that Moses will not and cannot see God's face because he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. If you saw it, it would actually be a detriment to you. You'd die. What is the meaning of all this? And how does all of this help us to interpret both the prologue of John's gospel and the prologue of 1 John? Well, I think the meaning is actually pretty clear. John mentions Moses in this great poem of the beginning of his gospel because Moses was the great lawgiver of the Old Testament and in some sense came closer to seeing God face to face than anyone else. It even goes so far to almost saying it in Deuteronomy. It's, by the way, the very last words of Deuteronomy in 34 there, that the Lord knew him face. It doesn't say he, Moses saw him face to face, but it says the Lord knew him face to face. comes as close as possible, right? And for that reason, Moses was rightly revered as the one who, so to speak, saw God. I mean, he had, for heaven's sake, he was up on Mount Sinai, came down glowing, right? He prays to see God. Deuteronomy says he, God saw him face to face. So John knows that. So what is John saying to us? Well, Moses is the one who, as I said, came closer than any figure, but ultimately that revelation was limited. He saw the goodness of God, he heard God's name, but he was not allowed to see God face to face. God kept that mystery for one and only one, his beloved son. That's why he didn't have that opportunity, that privilege, because God, in God's wisdom, he was reserving that for his own son. In John 1.18, he reminds us that indeed no one, absolutely no one has seen God. It's a very strong negative in the Greek. It's the, um, the negative is udes. It, it means like nobody. Nobody, pal. Nobody, absolutely no one. Udes, can you say it with me? Udes. It means absolutely no one. Underscore it, right? No one has seen God. So John is saying, hey, guess what? Not Moses, not Abraham, no one. Udes. It is God the Son, Jesus the Divine Son, Jesus the Logos, who gazed at God from all of eternity, and now in his incarnation, gazes at the fisherman named John, son of Zebedee. And John has figured that out with the help of the divine spirit. He knows that Jesus Christ, resurrected in glory, is the one who from all of eternity has been gazing at the Father. Not Moses, not Jacob, no one else. He's challenging them, his uh, uh, church, and he's challenging us today, John is, to say, who is the one for you that reveals God, ultimately? Is it Jesus Christ, or is it some other lesser figure? And he's saying, there's no one to compare to Jesus Christ. He's the one who reveals God because he's the one who has seen him face to face. In a sense, John is actually putting himself above Moses. In a humble way, what he's saying is, 
I had an experience on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and in Jerusalem that even Moses didn't have. And Peter had it too, and Andrew had it too, and hey, guess what? Even Thomas had it. We saw God in the flesh. We saw him eyeball to eyeball. We ate with him before and after the resurrection, right? We touched him, and he touched us. He touched our hearts. In this sense, John humbly but boldly proclaims the truth, the mystery, that while Moses did not see God in all actuality, John and the rest of the twelve did. And for that reason, this glorious reason, John beckons us to listen to him, to take his message and every word with the greatest seriousness. In a sense, John's credentials surpass Moses. By the way, he's not anti-Moses, right? He's not trying to downplay Moses. What he's doing is uplifting the sun. But I suspect, and here's my reason why he's doing this, I think the reason he's really doing this is that many Jewish believers, and remember all the first Christians were Jews, right, for the most part, were stuck between Moses and Jesus. And as the gospel is going out, they're like, well, why do we, why do we need to be baptized in, in John or in Jesus Christ? Right? We've got Moses, we've got Abraham, and these guys saw God. And we're saying, guess what? Moses didn't see him, Abraham didn't see him, Jacob didn't see him, none of these guys saw him. They're great, we needed them, but you need, you know, you're on a new team now. There's a new revealer that surpasses every other human figure because none of those guys were in eternity with, heaven, with God in heaven from all of eternity, only Jesus the Son. That's a really big point he's making. And he's making it in his gospel, and he's also making it again in these epistles. In fact, I would say that what he's doing in the epistle in uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1 is sort of just an echo, or it's like, it's like his greatest hits. He's like, here he goes again. He's saying the same thing as he said in his gospel. So obviously the church needed to hear it multiple times in multiple ways. For this reason, this glorious reason, John surpasses Moses because he beheld God in the flesh. And his message is basically this. Listen to me. Not for my sake, not because of anything I did, but listen to me and to my gospel and to my letter because I indeed had God revealed to me in the flesh. He will not back down on that point. Jesus, the divine son, was phanerao, was made manifest. To me and to the twelve, we saw it, we touched him, and we proclaim to you that was revealed to us that your joy would be complete. Pretty cool, huh? Four verses, but when you actually look at John's theology between the one prologue and the other, things start to come together. Okay, now we've got a few minutes left, and as I promised, what I want to do is try to quickly sketch out what's going on in these uh, much smaller um, letters of 2nd and 3rd John. So let's open up to 2nd John, and then as I said, next week um, we'll, we'll deal more with the, the rest of 1st uh, John. Okay, so 2nd John, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but all, uh, also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and we will, will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, there's a little echo of it again, in truth and love. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have from the beginning. There's that same phrase, right? Or a little echo of Jesus' is, uh, eternal life. And this is love, that we should walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning. 
so that you should have so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. There's the first notion now of a kind of schism, right? Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So guess what? Everything we've been saying about the prologue, both prologues now shows up once again, which should tell us something about what the church is struggling with here, right? Which is a basic identity of Jesus' incarnation and its importance. He actually goes on to say, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. There it is. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It's a package deal, right? Whoever abides in the teaching uh, has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in wicked works. His final remarks, Though I have much more to write to you, I would rather not use pen and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you to talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. There's again that theme of joy. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, here we have this language of the elder or presbyter. It is a title of authority, and as I say, I ascribe that to John the Apostle, just different language. Regardless, he's writing to what he calls the elect lady and her children. It's kind of a, lo- a way of talking about the local church under uh, the watch care of the, um, the so-called elect lady. So it's kind of language that's like the bride and the bridegroom, right? So it's very fitting here. Um, he says, whom I love in the truth. Aletheia in Greek, the term truth, is a dominant word in all three epistles and obviously in, in the um, gospel and also in Revelation. And it stands in place of the term gospel and all that it implies. Truth is being, going to be contrasted with various deceptions, which, as I said, next week will be a major part of what we're going to talk about. And John wants to confront that. And he also, in 3 John, is going to confront the person who's spreading these lies. Grace and peace, the standard apostolic reading in verse 2. Uh, now he says, some of your children, look at verse 4, some of your children walk, are walking in the truth. That seems to imply to me that some are and some aren't, right? Why doesn't he say all? He says some, which tells us something may be brewing in terms of uh, the crisis. Uh, final, last page. Not a new command I give you. When you read the apostles, what, you, what you're reading is essentially the words of Jesus explained. That's all that the Gospels are, right? The New Testament is the word of Jesus faithfully explained. So he's saying, I'm not giving you some new truth as much as I'm simply repeating the message of Jesus Christ. Not a new development here, just an important reminder. I love this phrase, follow love. Follow love. John reinforces the need to love one another, just as Jesus made that his um, foundational statement in John 13, 34. Love one another as I have loved you so also you must love one another. Now, as I said, in verse verse 7 here, uh, many deceivers, there was heretical teachers, even in this time, while the apostles, we saw in Paul's letters, uh, he talks about the so-called super-apostles who prop themselves up and inflate themselves, but they were false teachers as well. Apparently, John was dealing with these sorts of figures, and he saw them as a threat, and he called them out. Um, What were they threatening John uh, and John's church with? Here's the essence that one could be saved without relying on Jesus or his commandments, but on the spirit which Jesus deposited, like some sort of divine FedEx man, and then took off. So you have the spirit, you don't need Jesus. That's essentially it. And we'll talk more about that next week. What that does is it diminishes Jesus' centrality in, in salvation history, obviously, right? 
his crucifixion, his death, his enfleshment, and all that that implies. Um, notice, uh, like Paul, he warns them to not lose their salvation or to, be, or to be indiscriminate about it. He says, do not lose what you've worked for. It's kind of like Paul saying, run in such a way as to win the prize. I have a little note here. It says, we need not fear losing our salvation. Some Catholics run around in fear of losing their salvation, and that's wrong. But it's also wrong to be presumptuous. Um, we should have confidence, full confidence in Jesus Christ, who saved us and is saving us. Yet neither should we be presumptuous or prideful about a false assurance of our future salvation, our future life, which is yet to unfold. So John just warning them to be prudent. Take stock of your life. Um, and then again in verse 9 and 10, uh, anyone who goes on ahead beyond the apostolic teaching does not have God. John wants the church to understand that sound doctrine is not our own creation. Rather, it creates us. Okay, take a look, if you would, at, uh, as I said, the uh, Instagram of 3 John. <laughs> it's very short. This is the distinction between the shortest book in the New Testament. Okay. Um, I'm going to let you read it for yourself, and that's your homework assignment. Read it tonight. It's brief. But let me try to summarize it for you as we bring this towards a close. Um, in the letter, it appears that there is some sort of conflict between a local church leader whose name is Gaius, whom John says he loves in the truth, and then there's another self-styled leader whose name is Diotrephes, verse 9, who loves to be first. And that's not a compliment from John's perspective. When ambassadors of John, or in other words, other Christian visitors, arrive in Gaius' church, Diotrephes is there, and he does not welcome them as he ought. He shuts them out of the church. Well, when John hears that, obviously he's going to step in, right? And that's the purpose of this letter. Moreover, this Diotrephes gossips about the apostle behind his back. Look at verse 10. And, and those who defend John are excommunicated, essentially, from the assembly. So John's solution, very simple, twofold. First, encourage Gaius to fight the good fight, preserve the truth and charity, and secondly, if that's not enough, John says, guess what, I may step in here um, and confront him in person. And if you think John is just this lovey, ooey, gooey guy, read the book of Revelation, right? Because John could be bold when he needed to, and John would when he's protecting his children, meaning the church. He said, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. He who does good is of God. He who does evil has not seen God. Very sound pastoral advice that grows right out of this context. Gaius and, the other and all the children that is the church are called to imitate John. Why? Because he has seen God face to face. That's his credentials. Um, now, I want to leave you with a, a question to ponder. And next week, I'm actually going to have a number of questions for you to kind of take home and do a little Lexio and future application. Tonight's question is very, very simple. Who is it in your life that you know needs to be reminded of the truth? Who is it in your life, or maybe more than one person, who needs, whether it's from you or from someone else, to be reminded of apostolic truth? Um, before I leave you, as I said, just a couple things. One is, leave me your prayers. I, it's one of my personal ministries I like praying for people and taking your prayers with, so it's going to be later in the year, but I will surely keep them in a safe place and take them with uh, me to Jerusalem and pray for you, just as you've prayed for me. Um, the second thing before we break is I, I always try to bring a few biblical resources with me. If you're interested in my book, I've got some signed copies, The Word of the Lord. I've got a few of my CD sets. I just want to mention one. It's called Jesus, the Glory of God, John, a Complete Introduction to St. John's Writings. I think it's 15 hours, and I go through basically all of John, all three epistles, in a little bit more depth than I did tonight, and then the book of Revelation, I spent about five hours. So if you want a nice overview 
Um, I have a few copies back there. And next week, I'm super excited. I have something really cool for you. Um, it's just released. It's probably in Dulles Airport. I was going to bring it with tonight, but it's, I don't even have it myself. It's called The House of the Lord. It's a 25 hours, the longest series I've done, 25 hour series on the temple in the Old and New Testament. In one of those hours, um, I go through every room in the temple. And I, do you know there's a bakery in the temple? There was. And it wasn't Panera, right? It had a theological purpose. But I go through all the Old Testament and the New. It's basically designed to give you an understanding of the theology of God's divine presence with us. And of, of course, a lot of it is about our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll bring some of those with me. I don't have them. I'll have them next, next week. And that's all I have for you. Um, thank you all so much. God bless you. See you soon. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.